the number one threat is the strength and that strength that we build is inflation. Republicans seek to take control of the House of Representatives. Republicans are going to retake both the House and Senate. A liberal MSNBC host warning Democrats about the potential for a red wave. Do we have any sort of canary in the coal mine type indications of where we may be headed on that front? Fox News is calling the Virginia governor's race for Republican Glenn Youngkin. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve... Oh, fell, fellas, fellas. I, I, we start with a lot of crazy quotes, right? And with this administration, it's an endless supply. I, that is, to me, probably the worst one ever. So we always dunk on the whole thing of first Dems. We're like, there is no inflation. Then they were like, inflation is transitory. And they're like, inflation is good. And now inflation is our strength. It's our strength. (laughs) Things are so great that they've turned to shit. Yeah. Smash, do we have, can we listen to it one more time? The number one threat is the strength, and that strength that we build is inflation. The number one threat is the strength, and that strength that we built is inflation. (laughs) It's just unbelievable. (laughs) And to think that like a lot of these journos and libs were like, wow. President Trump, you know, he really should have a doctor look at him. He can't be all the way up there. Like, this is insane. The guy, at this point, Biden is just like, say words. You know, they just like push him out there and they're like, just say a noun, you know, uh, just say four things and then we can pull you right back out. And this is what he can do. That's the best he can pull out. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, welcome back to the Ruthless Variety program. Uh, sponsored today by PNAS, the number one science <laughs> PNAS. I love that we actually had a scientist contact us, and they're like, that is actually how you pronounce that it. That is how it's pronounced. <laughs> I uh, We had way too much fun with that, fellas. I, I, I was laughing basically all through the week at that uh, unintended segment. Yeah. <laughs> we got a great show today. We have two guests. Yeah, absolute banger. Two guests. For our political uh, aficionados, we have Senator Cassidy of Louisiana, who's going to tell us about a whole bunch of different stuff. And then in our broader interests group. Yeah, we got, a, we got a very special guest, folks. We got David Sachs. We have David Sachs. For those of you who don't know David Sachs, this guy is a head honcho. Yeah. Card-carrying member of the PayPal Mafia. I mean, he invested in basically every company that's been successful. Totally. And he's just a real thought leader uh, in the finance community, in the tech community. He's got his own podcast, uh, which which is great. But, he, I mean, this guy is smart. I'm yeah. really looking forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be great. Um, should we start with the ombudsman report? Absolutely. I love these. Yeah, and it, I think it's significant that we lead with the ombudsman. Yeah, well, because we have commitment to facts. We do. Here yeah. in the Variety Program. <laughs> there you go. So the uh, Ombudsman Report, this is the Strategic Maple Syrup Reserve. On Tuesday's episode of the program, the fellow speculated about the Canadian Strategic Maple Reserve, uh, notably that it was tapped last year to offset rising prices from the pandemic, and also notable for a high-profile $18 million Canadian dollar maple syrup heist in 2012. This is insane. Wow. Firstly, it's not really a national reserve. Rather, it is a conglomeration of Quebecois. 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 Maple syrup producers think OPEC controlling market conditions. Wait, wait, hold on. Can I stop you on that? Yeah. Is Quebecois, is that just mean that they're in Quebec? I think it means you are from Quebec. That's like Michigander. Yeah, yeah right. That's but it's what sort I'm of a at. French, yeah, it's like a French pronunciation. But that, like, if you're a Minnesotan, yeah. you're a Quebecois. Yeah. Will you say it one more time, Duncan? Quebecois. Yeah, that feels right. Amazing. That feels right. I, I think Montreal is a great town, by the way. I speak a little French. Un petit peu. Uh. 
Of course, of course, does not surprise me at all. All right, carry uh, on. From their website, this is a collective effort by Quebec maple producers, an ambitious and effective way to manage our markets. The stability it creates lays the groundwork for better planning and development. Furthermore, the reserve is wholly owned by QMSP. So, when maple syrup is sold from the stockpile, maple producers get paid. Okay, so it's like it's like a co-op. Yep, it's uh, it says details. The Global Strategic Maple Syrup Reserve spans 267,000 square feet, the equivalent of five football fields, securing syrup in sterilized 45-gallon barrels stacked five high. And there's an image, and this is incredible. Wow. <laughs> wow. It's 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 massive warehouse, folks, with 45-gallon, you know, barrels full of maple syrup. Stack five high. It's this as is amazing uh, as you'd think it would look. It's incredible, but I'm trying to figure out what did we really get wrong here? I mean, <laughs> yeah, why are we think, getting an ombudsman? Thought, why are we getting ombudsman report here? I think it's because we thought it was like gigantic pools. A vat? Oh. Like, yeah. <laughs> like monster vats. We thought it was a vat instead of barrels. Yeah. A guy with a big wooden spoon. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like the ombudsman's being a little no, we're, I, we're I, committed, I, committed yeah. to the facts here. No matter, no detail too small. Yeah. yeah. I think it's it's nitpicky here from the ombudsman. Yeah, oh, Daniels, it means yeah, push the bounds. It says the ombudsman's working overtime. They got a, there's another good little piece here. It was yeah. about the Roman bus that the lady found. Oh yeah, like yard sale or, or the Goodwill she sold. For, sure, she bought for thirty five, and we were wondering, you know, how much would something like that cost? It says well, we, we know how you into the busts you are. One hundred percent. Yeah, that's my thing. Always have been. It says uh, how much a Roman bus costs. While the woman who purchased the Roman bus from Goodwill is returning it to Germany, the, the Bavarian kingdom. Yes. For an undisclosed small finder's fee, a search of Sotheby's finds that these artifacts sell for as little as fifteen thousand. What? So well over fifty thousand. I'd have thought more. Wow. I yeah, would have thought that more. that would have been millions. Yeah. What's more, I mean, seriously, it's it's basically one of a kind, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you have an original Roman artifact from like the first century AD or BC, so like yeah, yeah it's, I mean, it's it's like two thousand years old, dude. Who'd have guessed that those things were uh, no market for that, huh? Right. We should go pick a few up. Well, I think maybe no market for the busts. Maybe because the person who it was of is not that famous. You know, yeah, but it's probably the only one left. I mean, you'd think so. I would. It's think like so. Honus Wagner baseball card. It's not, the guy's like you know not the best baseball player of all time, but it's the oldest card, so yeah. it's super valuable. Well, anyway, it is what it is. No market for the busts. Um, let us turn the page to a very important story that Hollywood Hen has been barking up our tree over for. I mean. Like weeks. Yeah. She's very concerned. Yeah. She's very concerned. And it, in fairness, this does have a tinge of, of scary to everybody, at least grill dads. Yes. For sure. It is a tick that makes people allergic to red meat. Yeah. That's uh, horrific. And apparently it is now in the greater Washington, D.C. area, which from my standpoint is positively terrifying. One bite from a Lone Star tick could cause an allergy to red meat for life. Uh, our, <laughs> listen, our recent warm weather has reawakened ticks and one type of particular is becoming common in the D.C. area, the Lone Star tick. One bite from this tick, which is easily identified by the white spot on its back if it's a female, can cause a lifelong adverse reaction to eating red meat. My God. Yeah. And this is so disgusting. It's unbelievable. I think the, the Washington Post just wants people to stay inside and not have any fun. <laughs> right. Because they cheerleaded Democrats to lead our economy right down to the gutter. 
so nobody can afford to go on vacation. And now people are like, you know what? Let's do a nice camping trip this summer. Can't Let's do, do something affordable. And now the Washington Post is like, oh. <laughs> just when you thought it was safe to go back outside. So wait, do, are we saying we don't think this is real? I mean, I'm terrified of the idea that I wouldn't be able to eat red meat anymore, so I'm going to treat it like it's real. I don't know. I mean, like, like, look. But here's the thing. is like, how do you treat it like it's real? What are we going to do? It's not like, you know, well, well, I'm, I'm going to put on, like, my tick repellent. No, I, there's nothing you can do. Yeah, there's right? nothing you can do. Wait, you're telling me you can't this spray, is a little, will. spray a little off? You can't do anything about it. You spray a little off on your legs? <laughs> that doesn't help with ticks? I don't. I think that's only for mosquitoes, right? <laughs> Really? But what, what 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 I don't understand. Think how healthy so, you guys would be I, if we didn't have red meat. Oh, <laughs> yeah. but, healthy and miserable. Where does where does this come from all of a sudden? I grew up outside of Cincinnati, Ohio, outside of a little town called Hamilton, and I sort of grew up in the woods. So I got I got yeah, a tick basically the, every it's like si- the sticks. They just yeah, we got, got running water a couple of years I, ago. I, I, <laughs> that's outrageous. The worst blast we in Indianapolis. Can't. Our social media intern is up for review next month. <laughs> I, but I get a tick every day. And like I, I never had Lyme disease. I never had a problem with red meat. Like where is all, all of a sudden you get a tick and you have Lyme disease and red meat aversion? It's like we, we're gonna get angry letters, but I feel the same way about like you can't get peanuts in public. Like no restaurant can have anything that's got a peanut thing because all of a sudden kids are allergic yeah. to peanuts. Like you can't. Yeah, they had to take them off airplanes and everything else. Rising allergies. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, uh, this one's a real staggerer though because if you if you're allergic to red meat for life by getting one of these, that's a real problem. A real problem. Are there any like animals that are known for eating ticks? Is there like the anteater but for ticks? I don't know. I don't know. If That's anybody what we knows that, unleash. DM us uh, maybe, because maybe we we'd lo- I'd love to know that. I mean, there's going to be a bird. We could engineer an anteater to like go after. An I remember how they were talking about like uh, last episode, they're engineering the, the him gene, to fight. Yeah, the gene editing. Make the anteaters eat ticks, man, and just like set out swarms of them. That would work, you know? It, it, keep the city clean. You see an anteater rolling around, you're like, he's doing his job. You know? Like it's a, like it's a Roomba. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we just need tick Roombas. What's that? Oh, it's my anteater. <laughs> he's got it sweeping for ticks again. <laughs> well, anyway, it's something to keep your eye out for because it seems like a real problem. Um, what else is a big problem is what uh, Joe Biden as apparently said as a strength yeah. uh, that he created, which was an amazing sentence. But but more importantly, look, inflation is barreled ahead at 8.3% in April yeah. from a year ago, remaining near 40-year highs. Uh, consumer pr- uh, price index, a broad-based measure of prices, goods, and services, increased 8.3% a year ago, higher than the Dow Jones estimate of 8.1%. That's according to CNBC. Uh, Smug, what does that tell us? Uh, it, it tells you that inflation is not transitory, like we had been told, that yeah. inflation is not a myth, as we had already been told, that inflation is good, as we had been told. All that is incorrect. This is, is showing not only that inflation is indeed a problem, it's looking like it's going to stick around, it's going to be a persistent problem. And then you look at some of these numbers. So so over from a year ago this time, Gas is up 44%. 44%. My Lord. So think about, I mean, that affects basically all Americans. Every yeah. time you go and fill up your tank, 44%. Um, airfare, 33%. Eggs, 23%. Uh, utility gas, 23%. Used cars, 23%. Hotels, 23%. Bacon, 18%. Chicken, 15%. To me, it feels more than 15%. Yeah, I, I agree. Like chicken breasts are like, you know, you're paying gold prices at the store right now. Totally. Uh, milk's up 15%. 
I mean, it's it's incredible the costs that are. This is just from a year ago. This just is, from a year ago. Can I can I read you CNN's description of this event oh today's boy, news? Oh boy. Quote. U.S. inflation took a breather last month for the first time since August. <laughs> took a breather? Took, I'm, I'm not kidding. It's a direct quote. No way. Took a breather. It exceeded It exceeded all 67 estimates by Bloomberg's Economist survey. It took a breather. It's <laughs> just Jeez. CNN for you. So wow. it says, it says CP, this is further from CNN, just to... This is how they rationalize it, which I think is fascinating. CPI was up 8.3%, like we said. A decrease from the 8.5% recorded in March. So it went up a shit ton, but slightly less bad than last time. So therefore, a breather. That's a breather. That's a breather. It's it's really the craziest way to try to frame this story. Unbelievable, dude. That's trying so hard. But you you actually have to have like a team work on that. Yeah. Because like that spin is so bad. I, like you, I, it's not obvious how you can come up with that framework. Yeah, I mean, it's it goes beyond a, a, like a, a just a fundamental lack of understanding of economics or any of this stuff. It's willful ignorance. It's willfully trying to mislead people. Right. Totally. Is. No, it's it, it, it's a straight up propaganda campaign. Well, a new poll, this is on studyfinds.org, uh, showed the overall the rising cost of living has Americans feeling jittery these days. Yes, it does. Yeah. especially baby boomers at 94% are nervous about rising inflation, rising costs. That is a shockingly high, 94% of baby boomers? Yeah. You know, here's the thing, those people vote. Yeah, yep, Those people vote. And and they are locked in on this election. I mean, everyone knows, every reasonable person understands that you know, the economy is going to be the central issue of the midterms. And no matter how much Dems try to, you know, create these issues that they think they can run on, like uh, abortion, which, like we said before, every voter who that moves already votes in every election. Totally. You know, what's happening here is there is a drastic change in uh, in, in Americans' pocketbooks. Um, Trying to get by, I think I saw another statistic where it said two-thirds of Americans at this point are paycheck to paycheck. That's a very significant portion, especially now when we're just, in my opinion, at the beginning, very, very early stages of an economic downturn. It has not even begun. You think it's going to get much worse? Oh, you know, my personal opinion is things are going to get much worse and and quicker than than anticipated because, you know, I've discussed on here previously the yield curve. You know, in the two and the 10 year, when they invert, usually it's a sign that within 12 to 18 months, you know, a recession is going to happen. I think five of the past six recessions have been called by that. And I had been thinking it's going to be like a 12 to 18 month window. Um, but I mean, you look at the market right now. Well, and you pancake eight and a half percent inflation on top that's of it, the thing. right? That's is the it thing. like there's no way to fight back? And the other thing is, is that the government is like the moves that the Biden administration have made have made this dramatically worse, right? They overheated and and a cash influx into this into this country that has created this problem, right? So when you think about the tools that are left available to try to avoid some kind of a recession, they don't exist. And they burned through them. So this is a bit of an aside, but if I can start going into a little bit of the econ stuff, um, we're going to have, in my opinion, a really bad kind of perfect storm scenario that, you know, those of our listeners who are old enough to remember 08, uh, this is going to be a bit different because 
like you've mentioned, we're going to have inflation. But the one one uh, tool that the Federal Reserve has, and they've only begun deploying, is jacking up the interest yeah, rates. Yeah, it's interest rates. Okay. Meanwhile, you know, uh, last month, I think it was a record of something like 55 million new credit card accounts were opened, which is mm. often a sign that, you know, people need to get access to more funds than they have readily available. Yeah. Uh, and they're doing that right before we're hitting economic downturn. I think Carvana announced they just laid off 2,500 people. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of these companies are going to start having layoffs. A lot of them have already begun signaling that all those incentives to hire, because remember the story over the past year has been like employees have the upper hand, like they can demand oh, yeah. all these perks and whatever from employers. Uh, a lot of employers have already put out the word that like, okay, things have changed. Perks are going, you know, a lot of these companies aren't meeting their earnings goals. Uh, the markets, as as I don't need to tell you, things are turning down. So you're going to have a situation where Americans are turning to credit right as interest rates are spiking. I saw another report this morning that said that housing has gotten so unaffordable, especially in the wake of rising interest rates, that a lot of Americans are now buying houses with adjustable rate mortgages. Oh, ahead oh of, no, oh, not no, back no, to that. Ahead of no. an environment we're going to have, the Fed has signaled we're going to keep pushing up interest rates. If only there was a financial tool where we could chop those into tiny pieces and package them together and sell <laughs> yeah, them right? at under rate for, <laughs> get rid for of triple risk A forever. ratings. <laughs> and, it would be, and it would be a triple A rating because, I mean, who doesn't pay their mortgage? <laughs> and we can sell them as a security. I feel like everything was just so dumb. We just wander so stupidly into these problems. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, God, I can't well, believe we have here, to deal with Democrats. Here's another problem that we have to deal with. Have, has anybody shopping for baby formula lately? I know the old man well, is... Well, so the, I, I was going to direct this uh, to the old man who is going to have a child in the near future. By the time you're listening to this, uh, I'll probably be in the hospital. Wow. Are you serious? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. My That's super being exciting. In, being induced tomorrow. Well, if you're listening to this today. Oh, wow. That's incredible. So we grab him drinks this weekend, or are you going to have to go home? <laughs> so, but knowing the old man, he's probably done a, a like dug a fortress behind his home where he's right. got a baby formula factory. Right. I would not be surprised. No. <laughs> No, no you're, you, you've taken care of it. I'm prepared for any eventuality. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised I've at all. I, told, I tell a bunch of people, I, I was grabbing Hugh, uh, drinks with Jeremy Hughes the other day, and I was like, if things ever went south, like, you know, like zombie invasion, Type of situation. The first thing I'm doing is getting to Dunkin's. Oh, you got to. I, I didn't want to tell him I'm on my way. No, you got to go. I'm like, I'm here now, man. You got to. <laughs> Take me to the bunker. I know you got ARs. We're gonna be good. <laughs> when it comes and it's coming, <laughs> we go to Dunkin's. Um, all right. So, in this particular story, though, 25 states are 40 to 50 percent of of baby formula are out of stock. Yeah, serious problem. Five states, over 50 percent of formula is out of stock. Hmm. This seems to me to be like a, a a tragic, horrible problem. Like, why isn't more why aren't more people talking about this? Well, because Democrats are in charge, and the media writes whatever Democrats tell them to write. I mean, it's as simple as that. It's truly remarkable. I mean this this is like crazy third world stuff that we're dealing with here. Yeah, and I mean, there's major impacts on you know not just for the mothers, but also like the labor force if, yeah if you like if if you can't get baby formula okay and you're you're spending that time driving around to walmarts and targets and trying to find it and trying to figure out a solution like there's gonna be disruptions to the labor market in that area like if 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 it's if it's a 
you know, mother who happens to have a job, yeah. you know, can't go to work. Like, how is that going to impact our economy? Right. Like, there's major, like, downstream impacts. <laughs> I mean, it, it, <laughs> to this to this sort of thing. Like, it's not like, you know, when we're talking about bacon being up 15% or something. Yeah, that sucks. But, like, there's real world impact here at a base level for economy when, like, kids can't eat. Well, it, 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 there's nothing that matters more, right? Right. I mean, that's, like, the single most important thing I think we can all agree right. on. Right. I cannot believe. I mean, I'm looking at this and says CVS and Walgreens have begun limiting purchases to three containers per customer. I mean, wow. If yeah. you, if you can find it, I saw somebody tweet uh, the other to somebody that was living in the D.C. area uh, that you got to drive 45 minutes to the closest store that has it in stock. That's yeah, just unbelievable. You know, I, this is just out of curiosity. I hit up eBay. Yeah, people are already listing baby formula on eBay. Oh, it's I. I hate that shit. But I mean, I'm fine if it's like uh, you know a PlayStation or something. But baby formula, dude. Yeah, dude Come on, man. There's, there's a lot of shit you can be scalping right now. But to to your point about people driving around to find it, uh, it's not like gas is getting any cheaper. It's actually mm-hmm. it hit another high today, right? Yeah. No. Uh, in another blow to the economy, this is according to CNN. Uh, prices at the pump soared to fresh record highs. The national average for regular gasoline climbed to more than more than four cents on Tuesday to four thirty-seven a gallon. Now, in a lot of places, it's a hell of a lot higher than that. Uh, guys, I mean, everything is. This is to your point that you were making, Smug. There ain't anything that looks good. No, that's the problem. Is I mean, like in 08, we were not in a period of high inflation. We were not in an area of where the Fed was using. Uh, you know, they coined the term having a bazooka back then. Uh, the bazooka that they were using did not involve, you know, raising interest rates. It was allowing liquidity into the market. Yeah. Uh, they've, I mean, that's now the problem that we're facing. You know, it's it's uh, we we've been awash in cash for so long, and so they're trying to jack up interest rates to kind of sop up some of that cash that's out there in the system. <laughs> I mean, there's going to be nowhere to turn basically for people. This is going to be such a pinch. Imagine, I mean, so in a perfect storm scenario, it actually makes some sense to me because you're you're raising inflation. Are raising interest rates to try mm-hmm. to decrease demand, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you've got the inflation layered on top of it, yeah, which is terrible. Mm-hmm. And you have no ability to inject liquidity because of that inflation, Bingo. right? So, so like literally, there's no. This is the real problem, right? And, and you've heard us talking on the on the variety program for a year about the irresponsibility of multiple trillion dollar bills going through Congress on a partisan vote and and jammed into the economy. And yes, we said it would cause inflation and yes, it caused it caused inflation. Bigger problem than the inflation is the fact that if the economy goes super south, mm-hmm. you have no tools. You have nothing you can do. Right? In 08, the economy crashed to the ground. Yeah. I mean, we were like an Armageddon situation. That was an Armageddon situation, but the tools that were available were deployed because they hadn't been used in the last, you know, it was the first time ever. The Fed had done large asset purchases, like when they announced TARP, which, you know, the, the government ended up making it a actually on. worked. Yeah. It ended up working. Yeah. But that's the first time the Fed kind of got involved in the business of asset purchases. It used to be like an incredibly like short term, kind of like a repo type of situation, but. Now, you know, since then, we've gotten used to the Fed just being like, yeah, we'll buy up assets, more cash out there. You know, we'll just buy up more assets, more cash out there. Smug, that was a very enlightening, extremely enlightening uh, view of the economy. But I think to get a a little deeper into this, 
what we ought to do is bring in our special guest. That's right. I mean, we have someone who knows a lot about the economy and, and building companies. Uh, special guest for today, folks. We got David Sachs. David Sachs. Let's go. All right. Well, folks, we have a very, very special guest today. Folks, David Sachs is on and here with us. Uh, just to give a brief intro for the few folks who may not know about David, uh, David was the f- uh, founding CEO at PayPal, hence a member of the PayPal Mafia. Oh, yeah. uh, he co-founded Craft Ventures, and he was an early investor in Facebook, Uber, SpaceX, Palantir, and Airbnb. So <laughs> Not a bad rap sheet. He's there. called pretty much every winner uh, over the past decade. Thank you so much for joining us. Good to, good to be here. Listen, David, um, let's just start. We want to get into all kinds of different stuff with you because you're one of the most fascinating people that we have come into contact with. But let's start with the topical news that that is the economy. Today's economy, it ain't looking so good. What's your take? Yeah, the market's in free fall. It's been this way for the last several days. It's been horrible, really, since November of last year. That's when the Fed started getting very hawkish and started making very hawkish statements in response to inflation. So if you go back, this all started last summer when all of a sudden we got an inflation print of about 5.1%. Mm-hmm. The Fed and Yellen and so forth, they all told us it was transitory. Well, by the end of the year, inflation <laughs> was up to almost 8%, it was 7.8%. That's when the Fed started taking it seriously. They started raising interest rates. They started, a lot more rate increases are going, are you know coming down the pike. And as a result of that, um, the markets have been you know pretty much in free fall and really specifically in growth stocks. Mm-hmm. It's the worst environment I've seen for tech stocks since the dot-com crash. Wow. Mm. Enormous amounts of wealth have just been vaporized over the, really the last six months, but even the last two weeks, it's accelerated. And it's it almost feels like it's becoming a panic to me at this point. Um, so we're, we're in the midst of the panic of 2022. So you <laughs> see this more as a panic and not necessarily like a kind of a shakeout that's going on among... There have been a lot of tech companies that have hit unicorn status. There's been a lot of tech companies that have been success stories and might not necessarily have the best economic model when they don't have, you know, more VC checks coming in. So you see this as more of a panic situation. Well, I think it started as a shakeout and maybe a, a, a well-deserved correction. But now I think it's starting to get into overselling territory. And that's not to say that the markets can't keep going down because they can, but I think the sentiment's become so negative that um, definitely certain names are looking pretty cheap right now. But I'm not advising anyone to get in because you know the old saying about trying to catch a falling knife. That's right. Um, what, one difference between now and say the year 2000 when we had the dot-com crash and that really persevered into 2001 and 2002 is that a lot of the companies back you know in the early 2000s, there were a lot of fake companies. I mean, right. there were companies mm-hmm. without real revenue and earnings and questionable business models. They just had eyeballs, um, you know, and they ended up going out of business, you know, that those companies lost anywhere from 90 to 100%. I think things are a little different now. The strongest companies in the world are tech companies. Um, even the with a lot of the more recent listings, uh, they, many of them are strong. You know, the SaaS companies, which is what I invest in, it's basically software as a service. It's basically business software. These companies are you know, meeting and beating their forecast each quarter. They are, I mean, they're selling a lot of software to, you know, to B2B and they're hitting their revenue and earnings targets and yet they're being, you know, pummeled right now. Hmm. And and if and if a company misses its forecast, we're seeing instant 20, 30% corrections. So Unity is down like 35% today because it missed 
Um, so we're seeing, you know, if if you miss your forecast, um, you're going to get really punished. But even if you hit your numbers, the market is going way down because of multiple compression right now. So some of this is justified, um, but some of it is it's starting to get into panic territory, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, look, it, the, the thing that, as you well pointed out, is the economy is very different, right, than it was in 2000 when we had the the last dot-com sort of bubble burst and, and, as you said, a lot of fake companies. But now, really, our economy is driven uh, in, in at least the last few years almost exclusively by growth in the, in the tech economy. Is there anything associated with this sort of freefall that it could be sort of tech lash? It's a specific sort of um, makes no sense, but a, a retribution type public sentiment, or is it is it all underlying economics? Well, the fundamental cause of what's been happening over the last six months is that over during COVID, you had this massive government overreaction to COVID in the form of money printing. And so between the Fed and Congress with all of the COVID stimulus money and then the Fed doing quantitative easing, you had about two, sorry, $10 trillion of basically money printing. And this concluded with that last $2 trillion um, COVID bill that Biden signed in his first quarter in office. I think it was the American Rescue Plan. Remember, they passed that along straight party lines, the yeah. last $2 trillion. There were plenty of economists saying, we don't need this. Mm-hmm. You know, we're coming out of COVID. This is unnecessary. Larry Summers warned them that could create inflation. Stanley Druckenmiller, the famed macro investor, warned them, don't do this. The consumer is already back. Retail is already 15% above trend, meaning if you look at the trend line of consumer spending, it was back and then some. Right. And yet they persisted anyway with this final $2 trillion of stimulus. And I think it was a cynical move to try and basically flood the zone with money before the midterm elections. And instead, it completely backfired mm. because what it did is it caused that massive spike in inflation that began last summer, that 5.1% spike that is now up to 8%. So all this money has come washing through the system. And at the same time, you are flooding the zone with money. You're also paying people not to work. Right. So you know inflation is caused by too much money chasing too few goods. And when you've got too much money in the system, and people aren't working to produce those goods, that's when you get a massive amount of inflation. Um, and of course, the rise in energy prices have been caused by this Ukraine war. That's contributed to the problem as well. So you've got this massive inflation, and the Fed then has been reacting to try and control that inflation. And in the process, I think they're going to cause the U.S. economy to go into a very severe recession. Oof. You saw that in Q1, it was negative 1.4% growth. It was a shocker number. Mm-hmm. Um, you, technical definition of a recession is two quarters of negative growth. We've had the first quarter of negative growth. It's, if Q2 is negative, then we'll be in a recession. So um, I think we're headed for a very severe downturn. And this was all basically caused by government engage, engaging in this like whiplash. 100%. Where first, they put out the punch bowl for way too long. And they let the party go on for way too long. They printed all this money we didn't need. And then they take it away so rapidly and so violently that it causes the stock market to crash. So I think people are going to look back at this and this just, this is more of the like folly of the COVID policy. We, this is the economic version of the COVID policy that we had over the last couple of years where you just had this ridiculous overreaction to COVID and now we're finally paying for it. And I think there's going to be a very severe recession. Well, I have a question. So 
Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of folks got interested in Bitcoin specifically because it's not beholden to the Federal Reserve. You know, no government can control the supply of Bitcoin. So it was seen as kind of like an inflation hedge. But Bitcoin's been taking a hit as well. Do you have any reason, you know, you think that's been happening? Yeah, I think it's because liquidity is coming out of the system. Mm-hmm. So th- this is the irony is that if the Fed prints too much money, then that's an argument for Bitcoin for the reason you said, which is Bitcoin doesn't, it, the, the number of Bitcoin is a fixed number. So it's not dependent on, it's, it's a non-fiat money. You, it, you never have to worry about government debasement because Bitcoin's backed by math. We know how many Bitcoin there are going to be in the world. Right. The, but, but the irony is that the more government prints, the more liquidity there is in the system. And you can think of the crypto market as a liquidity sponge and it sucks up a lot of that liquidity. So when people are feeling really flush, they can invest in more speculative things, and that includes crypto. So the irony is that when the liquidity goes away, the dollar gets stronger and crypto goes down, and that's what you're seeing right now. Hmm. Um, so we, you know, we don't know exactly where it's going to land. I mean, long-term, I'm a believer in crypto. The problem is that the prices of crypto got inflated along with everything else. We had this enormous asset bubble created by $10 trillion of, of money printing by the government. You know, it's just it's just fascinating. I I could listen to him talk about about the economy and where we are. I agree with everything you had to say. But but one thing I want to get into is back to the beginning. I want to go back to the PayPal days with you because yeah. this is just fascinating to me. For those who don't follow this stuff closely, you and your your group of folks have have basically been at the ground floor, as Smug said in the introduction of an incredible amount of massive success stories, uh, not just in tech, just like throughout the economy. Tell us about that adventure, how that began. Yeah, I mean, it really, well, it began for me when I got a call from Peter Thiel, who I'd gone to college with. We had both gone to Stanford in the uh, early 90s. And I went off to go to law school and, you know, I graduated and was working at McKinsey as a first year management consultant. And then Peter called me up to tell me, about this company he was creating and he convinced me to join. And that was back in 1999. You know, I thought I had missed the whole dot-com thing because I was in law school from 1995 to 1998. And that's when, you know, Amazon and Yahoo and eBay and all these companies were taken off. And I thought I had missed the whole thing because I'd been at Stanford in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley during, you know, from 1990 to 1994. And then, you know, my friends, graduated in 95 and stayed in the area were like part of this incredible dot-com wave <laughs> you're like what's so, up with this <laughs> yeah i know and i'm like i was a stupid person who went to law school when i should have stayed stayed put um so i was like damn you know i missed that whole thing and then peter called me in 99 and i ended up going back to uh to silicon valley and and joined the company that had become paypal and um about six months after i joined the company we had the dot-com crash yeah and so we had to basically persevere through the dot-com crash. And one of the remarkable things about PayPal is that it was primarily built um, during and in the wake of the, the dot-com crash. Right. And you had a really amazing group of founders, a really amazing group of people sort of persevere through the dot-com crash to create you know, a landmark company. Which is so incredible because if I'm not mistaken, PayPal was basically, I think it might have even been the first IPO post 9-11, right? I mean, this is, this, we're talking about seriously tumultuous times and, and to be able to weather that, I mean, I guess that sets you on the path for success. Yeah, we IPO'd in early 2002 and it was, it was the first IPO after 9-11, the first IPO, first, certainly the first tech IPO since the dot-com crash. 
and people were very skeptical. There was a, uh, I think there was an article in the local newspaper called uh, Earth to PayPal, you know, basically <laughs> saying you didn't get the message that you're supposed to be dead. You know, uh, you, you didn't get the message that tech companies are over and, uh, you know, you miss, must have missed the dot-com crash because you're not supposed to exist. And then the, you know, the IPO was successful. And then later that year, we ended up selling the company to eBay. Um, and then, you know, down the road, eBay spun it back out. And today it's, you know, a hundred billion dollar company, roughly. <laughs> and, you know, speaking of being part of the PayPal mafia, you know, we were missed to not bring up Elon Musk on the show today, especially given how he's basically the news cycle every day on, on That's something incredible. Elon tweeted. He's now become a political figure, yeah. David. Did you ever th- right. suspect that? No, I mean, I thought he was really busy doing SpaceX and Tesla. <laughs> and um, I mean, I, based on conversation with him, I knew that he felt similar to the way I do about free speech, but I didn't know that he would take up this banner and really run with it. But I've been very gratified to see him do that. Yeah, the WS, uh, Wall Street Journal had an article saying that Elon has a shadow crew that was advising him to take, are you part of the shadow crew? Can you confirm that on today's episode? I, I was I was named as part of the shadow crew, but um, but it, I don't know if, I don't think that exists. I mean, I never advised Elon to, to buy Twitter, you know? Um, I expressed words of encouragement and support, but he never consulted with me about it, and I never gave him, I never consulted with him about it. So I don't know where they got that from. Um, <laughs> well, it's, it's really, I mean, look, from my perspective, it's one of the most patriotic things I've seen in a long time, yeah. right? I mean, if, if you believe in free speech, if you believe in free expression and you've watched what's happened in this country through censorship and this sort of elimination of dissent all across this country, and you have the means to do something about it, you know, everybody's looking at each other like, are they going to do anything? And all of a sudden, Elon <laughs> jumps right into the midst of it and probably takes the, the biggest tiger by the tail. Absolutely. I think that's right. I mean, you know, this wave of censorship had so much inertia behind it. You know, it started several years ago with just a few isolated figures being thrown off, you know, and they were thrown off because they were basically unpopular, considered provocateurs. You have people like a Milo Yiannopoulos or an Alex Jones. We were told at that time, these are isolated cases. But sure enough, more and more people kept getting deplatformed and thrown off until finally a sitting president of the United States gets deplatformed. Mm-hmm in what was it January of 2020. And then the censorship spread to financial deplatforming. You had the Canadian truckers. Yes. If you were involved in that protest simply by honking your horns or you donated to them $25 so that a trucker could buy a hot meal or something like that, you could have your bank account frozen. It's like financial deplatforming. And now more recently, you have entire categories of thought and opinion being banned from social networks. If you said the wrong thing about the efficacy of vaccines or cloth masks, or where the virus might have come from, you could be censored and deplatformed. And now they're spreading it to other types of uh, opinions like climate change and uh, gender identity. You know, they're basically outlawing entire categories of opinion. And does anybody think it would have stopped there? This thing, no. this galloping wave of censorship had so much inertia behind it, it would have kept going and going until basically there's, it would have been fully prescribed what we can say and think on these social networks. And then along comes Elon. And it's like one man basically drawing a line in the sand saying, this has gone far enough and I'm gonna do everything I can to stop it. And I think his example, wherever this goes from here, I think his example has been extremely powerful because it was long overdue that somebody basically stand athwart this censorship and Mm -hmm. yell stop. 
Totally, totally. And I, I, th- I think it, it actually extends beyond that, in my view, because I, I think not only is it the censorship piece, but, but it affects everything. And you can see if this doesn't work, right, if, if this piece of his effort to try to take over Twitter, if that doesn't work, you can see a scenario where you have basically a conservative economy and a liberal economy, right? You can have right. two worlds living in parallel. I can't imagine anything worse for this country. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, that's sort of the logical result of where all this deplatforming goes. I mean, you kind of see it where you've got YouTube and Rumble, right? Yeah. And um, and I think that type of dichotomy, it could sort of percolate through the whole economy. I think you're absolutely right. Um, it's already kind of happening, you know? Um, there's Isn't there like kind of conservative coffee brand? Yeah, that's, done very well. <laughs> that's the thing. It's like, you know, it's funny because you see anytime you see on a, a conservative podcast, it's it's like, you know, whatever names you haven't heard of, but they're all conservatives. And then you go to a liberal one and it's like Coca-Cola. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's, it's you know, it's part of it also is this sort of uh, woke capitalism, right? You have all mm-hmm. these Fortune 500 companies becoming woke and sticking their nose into issues where it has where it doesn't belong. And you saw like Bob Chapek at Disney stuck his nose into yeah. what was happening in Florida and he got his snout whacked by, you know, DeSantis. But it just shows the way that like these Fortune 500 uh, companies are getting politically active and mobilized on one side of the aisle, on one side of the issues. And I, th- I think you're right. The logical result is we're going to end up with a conservative Coke and a liberal Pepsi in every industry, yeah. you know, where people can't live with each other. It's not it's not good. I mean, it'd be a lot better if companies would just stay out of politics and uh, we didn't try to politicize everything in this country. Oh, hundred percent. You know, I, I think you raise a good point with the DeSantis deal with Disney in Florida. It may be the first time. I mean, as long as I've been in politics, which is 20 plus years, you, you have CEOs basically believing that conservatives will hold down the free market capitalist view, right? They'll basically give them free shots. So you got to do what you got to do to try to placate the left. And that means funding every one of their causes. It means giving lip service to absolutely wacky ideas that have nothing to do with their business model whatsoever. And I feel like this is a little bit of a change, right? It's like all of a sudden yeah. there's some repercussions on the other side for getting involved in something you have no idea what it is. Yeah, I think there, there there is a big change. This is the populist transformation of the Republican Party. And look, I, I believe that, look, the, the fundamental choice in, in, in your economy is whether it's going to be uh, a free enterprise system or a planned socialist style economy. And I believe in a free free enterprise system. But look, you know, uh, an economy that's dominated by a bunch of powerful monopolies is not a free market. And I think it's long overdue that Republicans take a page out of uh, Teddy Roosevelt's playbook. He was the trust buster. He's on Mount Rushmore for a reason, mm-hmm. which is he protected the right of the ordinary man to work. Yeah. And that is what Republicans need to do today. These big, powerful companies that are huge monopolies should not have the right to cut pe- off people's access to the banking system mm-hmm. or to end their freedom of speech because they have views that these big companies disagree with. That is fundamentally un-American. Uh, and uh, Sax, yeah. you want to get into politics? This sounds pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> You're too smart of a man to do that. But I, I swear to you, it would be very refreshing to hear your point of view on the national stage for this. Teddy Roosevelt's on Mount Rushmore for a reason. That is the playbook Republicans need to follow today. Um, you know, it's not a free market when we are dominated by a cartel of large monopolies who 
put a, who bar- create a barricade to free speech and our ability to hold the opinions that we want, which is basically where this whole thing was headed, right? Where they're not only cutting off your right to speak on social media, which that is the right, that is the town square now. Elon's mm-hmm. totally right about that, that Twitter and social networks like it, they are the town square. If they deplatform you, de-platform you if they cut off your right to participate on those networks, what effective free speech right do you have in this country? I don't think you have one. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to go to the courthouse steps and pull out a soapbox? Yeah. People think you're a crazy person. That's <laughs> not free speech anymore. Free speech has been privatized. It exists on these social networks. That is where you go for political speech. And if you're cut off, if you're deplatformed, you do not have a free speech right in this country. That right has to be protected. Republicans have to protect that because Democrats certainly won't. Oh, yeah. Round of applause. That one. <laughs> Thank you. God bless it. It's so nice to hear somebody in your line of work say that. <laughs> Listen, all of our guests, we have three big questions, and these are the ones that everybody sort of pays attention to, Mr. Sachs. So this this is uh, this is where the rubber meets the road. The, the first question is, if you can plan your last meal on Earth, what would it be? You know, uh, it'd probably be pretty straightforward. I'd just get a, a well-done steak and a baked potato. That's that a well done steak is not one that we hear often on the road. <laughs> a well done New York steak. Yeah, I like it. Uh, I think it's called Trump style. <laughs> yeah, that, I think that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And a Coca Cola for him. I don't know if you want want some kind of a no, red I wine. Might, I might want a I might want a, a glass of uh, Screaming Eagle or something like there that. There you go. Yeah, you, if you're going to go out, you might as well go out big. I love yeah. it. All right. So second question. I'm very interested to hear your perspective on this. If you never got into your line of work at all, right, and you have this huge amount of time that you can fill with a blue sky answer of what else you would want to do in life, what would it be? You know, it's interesting. I, I um, every, every few years, I discover some intellectual interest that, you know, it's it's interesting to me and I can I kind of go deep on it. Um, you know, I would say like being an architect would be a lot of fun. I think mm-hmm. I would have liked a job like that. Um, more recently, I've been kind of getting deeper into understanding international relations, reading some of that literature. Mm-hmm. Um, I gave a talk recently about America's policy on Ukraine. So, yeah, those are two areas that interest me right now. Yeah. I mean, and architect building things. I get it. Mm-hmm. It makes perfect makes sense. sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's a similar it's a similar type of thing where you walk into a space and imagine what it could be. And that's basically what we do when we create startups or invest in startups is you have to imagine what it could be because yeah. it starts off being nothing. Yeah. Yep. A hundred percent. All right. So here's the third question. You got to stick with me on this because I got to explain it. Our view is that everybody's motivated by one of two things, the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat. But here's where it requires some explanation is because absolutely nobody loves defeat or doesn't like victory. It's what motivates you from one way or another and the thrill of victory person is always the sunny optimist glass half full charging up the hill because they know they can make the next accomplishment basically the agony of defeat person is a someone who his ever every accomplishment lasts about five minutes they appreciate it for like less than 10 minutes but every defeat or setback they've ever ever had in life it sticks with them forever they wear it like a backpack and they work that much harder to try to overcome to make sure that that never happens again or they can reach the next level david sachs where do you find yourself 
I mean, I think there's elements of both philosophies that I would identify with. Um, I mean, I can tell you at PayPal, what we did is um, the team was very paranoid about all the things that could go wrong. I mean, you have to be optimistic enough to want to create a company in the first place, but every day we would imagine all the things that could kill us. And then we would work systematically to, to work away those risks. You basically try to eliminate those existential risks. So by being paranoid about all the things that can go wrong, you actually create a roadmap for yourself as an entrepreneur to eliminate those things. And if you eliminate all the ex- existential risks then you survive and, and prosper. Hmm. So it's sort of a combination of both. I mean, I do think about the downsides a lot, but, but in the service of trying to go for some big upside, basically, not just risk avoidance. Yeah, well, r- whatever that amalgamation is, I think a lot of people want to subscribe to it because you've had success like almost nobody else. I can't thank you enough for joining us on the program. Really appreciate your time. Stay in touch. We'd love to know what you're up to. Uh, so anytime you're welcome on the Variety program. Awesome. Great to be with you guys. It was fun. Thank Thanks. You. Man, that guy is smart. He validates a lot of the points you were making, Smug. Yeah, I mean, if anyone would know what this environment looks like, like he described perfectly that, you know, the high growth stocks where have empowering a lot of the economy are the ones taking the biggest beating right now. Um, we've had such a long time with the Fed just printing money. I mean, there's, these are a lot of problems, and, and there's going to be some some tough times ahead for the economy. I just love talking to a guy that has that much success. I right? mean, just like Babe Ruth. He just points out home runs. Total, total, total Babe Ruth. I love it. <laughs> so Congress is opening their first hearings about UFOs in nearly 50 years. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Finally some good news. Two Pentagon officials will testify at a hearing about UFOs next week. The hearing will be held Tuesday, May 17th, in front of a subcommittee of the House Intelligence Committee. Um, we already know the House Intelligence Committee has a lack of intelligence. Yeah, can I just say, I mean, it is, it is so ironic that the House Intelligence Committee, run by Democrats in a period of high inflation, when single parents are skipping meals so they can feed their children, they're turning to UFOs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, literally, they'll do anything for clicks. They won't do anything for constituents. Do you think we can get them to ask a question about the naked pictures that they're sending to the uh, aliens? Like, this is where government spending is going. This That's is. What, it, it grinds my gears, like, right now, the priorities that this government has. Totally. And, and you know, it's, it's not only a Democrat thing. Like, I was surprised that you had Republicans who were like, now's the time to send more lethal aid to Ukraine. It should be a situation of where they're like, hey, you know, Lockheed, whoever, hop over there, send your salesmen. They can buy direct. You know, I doubt Ukraine would have a hard time right now borrowing money from countries. But, like, hey, we'll we'll... we'll pay Lockheed and send it to you. It seems kind of like a bad proposition to me. Well, it seems to me at some level, somebody needs to be focusing on some of this, right? The inflation piece of it, the truth is, the absolute truth is, you don't want your federal government doing anything about this because the answers that they have to a recession are terrifying. It makes things worse. It's actually why we're here. Unlike the housing crisis in 08, unlike the the dot-com bubble bursting in the late 90s, unlike the savings and loans issues in the late 80s, unlike you know a lot of the end of the Jimmy Carter years in the 1970s, the government proactively created this. Elected officials proactively created the conditions that we're living in. 
you don't want them doing anything to help you because yeah, okay. their answer is exactly the wrong fucking thing. So you're saying if Democrats are focused on UFOs, it might be a good. They're thing. not. They're not making things worse, and the private sector can figure it out. It might be great for us that they focus on UFOs. I would love to. I don't know why you guys are poo pooing this so much. I'd love to know more about UFOs. You know why I'm down on UFOs? Why? Because there was a 60 Minutes story like two years ago, and Her- the late Harry Reid was all over this thing yeah. about. How that we needed to reopen a bunch of, of old files yeah, coolest, to investigate. Coolest thing he's ever done. Right. Except for the fact that the 60-minute special showed up. It had a whole bunch of like former Air Force people talking about how they saw all these UFOs and whatnot. And they showed the footage. And two years later, you find out that like all of it's bullshit. No, it is not. It was. It was. It was total bullshit. It was like light flares in the sky. And I mean, you never find out that one of these things are real. Hold on. You Have you seen the video footage? You've seen the subsequent video footage, like recent it stuff. It's bullshit, dude. You're no. claiming it's real. Wait, the Navy films? Yes. With the, you think the, it's real? The pilot is tracking the thing, and it, it defies the laws of physics. Listen to this fucking it's fake guy. news. With, I bet the de- pilot was a dem. That's what they're doing. <laughs> they're trying to. They're trying to take the you know our eye off the ball. They're trying to trick voters into worrying about this garbage. I mean, it would be the story of a century if we somehow found a UFO, but in the history of mankind, never has it happened. I mean, here's the thing: is like if they of, wanted to be found, if they rolled up like Independence Day style, then then what's going to happen? We're just going to fight them. It's not like we can do anything about they that. Roll, they rolled up probes out. I mean, we're not going to preempt to strike the aliens. <laughs> I hope someday we do a live show from Roswell, so I can show you. <laughs> you can show, show us, us the what? show us the museum. Yeah, Duncan <laughs> will show up and be like, "I demand to see the alien." They're like, "Yes, sir." <laughs> they open up the vault and the alien walks so, out. I got <laughs> I got a story. I've got a story to tell you. No. Um, that one time my wife and I, this is back when we were dating, we were driving uh, through New Mexico and we stopped at Roswell and mm. we did an alien tour. No <laughs> from, from the number one Yelp reviewed alien tour guide in Roswell. His name's... The number one Yelp regret. Yeah, this is he so must, research too. He should take the of tour. Of course I did. Well, you should. I mean, that's a good, that's a good, that's a good tip. You must have been a guy's a, name? Um... Yeah, Balthazar. Oh, uh, oh it's <laughs> And he was a terrific showman. It's Hold like, here, here's what you do. Hold you on. go to Roswell. Dennis. Dennis Balthazar. That was his name. I'm looking him up right. Look. Guy's got five-star reviews. And he gives you like an alien, like a like a Star Trek handshake, and in you go. He show, he shows you the hangar. The hangar <laughs> where they... The real hangar? Where they found the crashed uh, space... Where they took the crashed spaceship. Did you everything. see evidence? Uh, he, we had many, yeah, pictures. And stuff. Did you have to sign a, a a release that you wouldn't say what actually you saw? <laughs> no, look, it was it was fun. It was here's the other fun. thing. Here's the other reason why I think it's all bullshit. If it was real, Trump would have talked about it. Yeah, yeah that's, that's true. The thing. Well, that's a great. Point. He, he always real, brought the truth to the people. If if it was real, he would have talked about it. It would have been the best rally ever. Yeah, yeah listen, folks. He's like, I we, got some. They're news. real. We actually found them. I got some news. <laughs> Folks, aliens are real. <laughs> and you want to know who killed JFK? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Alien, aliens are real and Space Force killed them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last thing I want to bring up here before we play a game. Uh, did you guys see this passenger who has no idea how to fly an airplane, flew an airplane, and landed it? Are you Wow. Yeah, according to the New York Post, a passenger with no flying experience successfully landed a small plane in Florida Tuesday after the pilot suffered from a medical emergency. Um, here's my question. Could you get it done? Absolutely, 100%. I mean, no way. 
No, I mean, I absolutely would not. I mean, we'd be all be dead. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm being serious. I bet I could take off in a plane, 100%. I'm pretty sure I that. can 100% see uh, Smug get behind the old yoke. Yeah. You know, and sit there and then, like, start looking. I mean, fascinated I'll, by the buttons. I'll give just it, start pushing I'll the just buttons. pushing things. <laughs> I'll give it a like shot. The, pushing all the red ones. Yeah. I, I, will, I will 100% give it a shot. If we're out of options, I'll give it a shot. You know, I'll raise my hand. I'll be like, I, I, I can do this. I'll give it a shot, you know? <laughs> I I'm get, not confident. I could get that plane down. I'm pretty <laughs> confident I can get that plane down. Back in the old days when we had, you ever have a gateway computer? Like yeah. back in the day. Yeah, well, you OG. talked about Clippy the other day. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, Flight Simulator? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had Flight Simulator on there. Played that thing. Loved that thing. You could get that thing down. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Smash, could you get the, the plane down? Uh, if somebody was talking me through it, maybe. Yeah. I, I don't know. So now I want to welcome to the program... Uh, for our second special guest of the day, U.S. Senator Bill Cassidy from the great state of Louisiana. Uh, Senator, how are you? I am doing great, Josh. How are you, man? I'm really good. You know, it's been a little while. Life treating you well? Yeah, Josh, you look younger and younger. Are you wearing a hat just to keep gray hair hidden? I mean, like, what's the secret? Because no one ever tells me I look younger and younger. <laughs> if I say yes, will you hold it against me? <laughs> uh, listen, no, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, there are a number of really pressing, important issues that you're sort of in the middle of. But your home state uh, has been an, sort of an energy hub in this country for a long time. And... Given what we're seeing with gas prices and everything else, I figured that that's a good place to start. Um, what are your thoughts about the current situation? I think the current situation shows the total bankruptcy of the left's war on fossil fuel. Yeah. The idea that we can live without fossil fuel is totally absurd. Yeah, yeah, totally absurd. Uh, as anyways, as the person, as the person who is advocating that is speaking on their phone, which has plastic encasing it, which was made with chemicals, which has synthetic rubber, you name it. And somehow we're going to live without fossil fuel, which is the feedstock for everything made. Well, that's the thing that every that nobody understands, right? Everybody's like, oh, yeah, petroleum, oh, that's terrible. We, we, we can't do anything with fossil fuels. And then they don't realize that literally everything that they have in their being is, is basically in some part or portion uh, petroleum. So think about it. Think about it. We're just going to make our plastics from corn, okay. We're going to make fertilizer using natural gas. We're going to transport the, the, the fertilizer made from natural gas to the field in order to improve yields. But by the way, in the meantime, we're going to cut down a lot of trees to expand the Amazon basin, to expand these uh, fields, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> I would argue that under certain circumstances, fossil fuel is the most environmentally friendly, certainly the most geopolitically friendly, mechanism by which we can power a modern economy and produce the uh, produce the goods that are essential to modern life yeah. and the only people who don't think so are, are either choose not to know or they are insulated from from the reality of life by wealth yeah yeah i think that's 100 percent true and if you think about where we're at in the economy and Boy, nothing's looking good out there. I mean, you look back to 08, 09, the thing that powered us through that was the energy sector. These guys would like to eliminate it altogether. So if you think about it, the, the real challenge in our society is how do we create good paying jobs for folks who don't have a college education? Good people show up to work, care about their family. Um, uh, but statistically, you go to a college degree, you're going to make a million dollars more in your life unless you look at the energy industry 
in the energy industry, those folks willing to work hard, they show up every day, maybe work 30 days on, 30 days off in an offshore rig. Uh, they're going to make north of six figures in some cases. Mm-hmm. This is an industry, aside from providing uh, critical resources, also provides really good paying jobs, yeah. making up for the income gap between those who do and do not attend college. So um, there's a lot to this. And the people that are warring on fossil fuel, I would argue, are warring on the pocketbook of the Americans who pay higher price if we have too little of it and of the Americans who are employed creating good middle class, good paying jobs that give their children a better future. How do you deal with this with your your Democratic colleagues, some of which, of course, are from states that uh, are sort of blissfully ignorant about how the economy works? Uh, how energy is is central to our entire economy. Um, how do you talk to them about this? Well, of course, there's those who have a religious hatred of fossil fuel. Yeah, okay, which so, is what it's become, right? I mean, that's, it basically feels like a religion. Uh, among some, yes. On the other hand, you know, it's the um, this, the this, the educator in me. You got to return to the first things. We're all Americans, and and the educator in me hopes that facts being pesky things, I think that's a Daniel Patrick, Patrick Monaghan uh, quote, that pesky things, you, you know, you can have your own opinion, not your own facts. If we can just go through the facts, maybe a little dry, and then talk how we can mitigate their concerns, maybe we won't agree, but we can come to common ground in terms of policy. Mm-hmm. Now, the only way we move forward as a country, if we go through that patient, painful process of understanding the perspective of the other, conceding good intentions, educating, coming to common ground, giving a little bit, getting a little bit, and finding up with policy that we can live with. Um, uh, if you will, D.C. hates nuance, but we need a little bit more nuance. Yeah, yeah. Well, you got a bigger heart than I do. I, I, I'm pretty skeptical <laughs> about some of your colleagues on this, but you brought up the fact that you are a, an educator, which I, I look, this is something that a lot of people don't know about you. I think it's the case that your wife and, and yourself started a school for dyslexic kids. Is that correct? My wife started the school. I, I promote policies for children with dyslexia. Uh, but Laura is the um, chair of the board of a public charter school. They're opening their second charter in Louisiana next year and their third the year after. And they have schools that they're helping to start. They're the Louisiana Key Academy. But there's going to be in the next few years an Idaho Key Academy, a Utah Key Academy. Oh, great. Um, and uh, there's other schools around the country copying their model. Well, My it's wife's inc- a force. She's a force. <laughs> That's why I, I, I remember this well. I remember this well about you. Um, but, but look, I think, first of all, let's just say incredible work on that. Obviously, charter schools, incredibly important. The state of education in this country is somewhat of a concern. You have to agree. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> <laughs> the situation at the border, inflation, and the state of education. Uh, pick, pick your poison. But where do you start with education, right? Because, I mean, look, so much of this has come to light during COVID where parents are for the first time understanding the curriculum that is being taught to their kids. They're horrified by it. And that's when they could get them into school right? When you have teachers unions and the like, very clearly, very blatantly, uh, in many cases, chosen sort of a path other than to try to educate kids, which is their primary goal, supposedly. Um, Where do you start with trying to change all this at a federal level? Or do you? So um, you don't go where the Biden administration is going. No. Um, You know, the basic principle in our society is that you give the person, in this case, the parent, 
the choice of where she should send her child to get her child's best education. If your child is dyslexic, you should be able to send your child to a school which has a science-based curriculum, which is specific for children with dyslexia. So smart. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. Uh, why should you be trapped in a school which has terrible reading scores for children who don't have dyslexia? It's and what's, what experience shows, you put market forces like that in place, even within public school systems, the market responds, parents, the mom demands, and the system lines up to, to a higher level of accountability. So I would just go back to what we believe as conservatives, uh, which is if you have individual responsibility um, and you limit the power of government to dictate where someone goes and you believe in free markets, those three come together to improve education for the child. Mm -hmm. Yep. No, I think that's super important. I mean, look, the basis of what you're talking about in a lot of ways is school choice, correct? Absolutely. I call it parent choice. Oh, yeah. Um, a parent choice. Give the parent the choice of where she sends her child, which may be to a public school, because there are high-performing public schools, um, or it may be another option. But give her the choice. And and you know, and what we're really talking about is a policy for middle-income and low-income families who who need help, who need help choosing a school which better fits their child need. Yeah. Uh, the the people who oppose these policies typically are either stakeholders like teachers unions members. Or they're wealthy. Yeah. Um, uh, why don't we just think about the folks who, like, you know, um, going back to that, group, that, that that family who's the wife works in the chemical industry and the husband works in the oil industry and they want a future for their child where they go to college and grad school, uh, but they need to prepare them and the local public school is miserable. Why don't we give them a choice and a little <laughs> bit of a hand up if they can? When, you, when your school board is more interested in changing the name of your school than teaching <laughs> them math and reading, you probably should have a choice to go to another school. I mean. Yes. First things first, right? Yeah. Just a, It's just an alarming uh, deal. But I know you've spent a lot of time on it. And I know you think about it a lot. And, and I'm, what I hope is that if we're fortunate enough to get Republican majorities, we can begin to turn this a little bit because it feels like – the teachers unions in sort of a bad way of dealing with with education in general is sort of forever insulated right now by this democratic majorities i agree with that totally and the biden administration is trying to reverse some federal support that currently exists for charter schools this is so egregious that we recently had a letter in which it was bipartisan mm -hmm. and so we can actually i think the significance of the issue to parents is recognized by some Democrats. And I do think that is our opportunity. Going back to what I said earlier, um, 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 you know, just because somebody's another party doesn't mean that they don't necessarily are, are going to not care about somebody. It's just you got to work at it a different means. Well, it, so, always, it, al it always helps when their constituents have a definitive view. Oh, talk about. <laughs> and that's the reason we have elections, right? Yeah. Elections keep people accountable. And yeah. so I'm totally with you on that, Josh. Um, Amazing how after Virginia, there was a whole different view of, of how we operate educationally. Yes, Virginia, parent choice in schools is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> no question about it. No question about it. All right. So before I get to my three questions for you, Senator, I've got to ask you, so where do you live in Louisiana? Baton Rouge. You're in Baton Rouge. Okay. So if we ever make a, a trip to Louisiana, I need your recommendations. You know, obviously everybody says Mardi Gras and you got to go to New Orleans, but I feel like you have a full flavor of where we ought to go. 
I'm going to give you two. Well, I'm going to give you. Oh, 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 oh. I can give you several things. I'm going to give you at least three. You ready? Okay. Okay. It is Mardi Gras. Yeah. But you don't go to New Orleans. You go to Mamou. Okay. All right. This is a good tip. Fred's. Okay. They start drinking before noon. I don't drink. So, but you know, I'm not endorsing, but nonetheless, uh, they get on horses. They set chickens loose. (laughs) Really? And everybody tries to catch the chickens. Uh, So you start drinking before noon and then they let chickens loose. This sounds like our kind of party. (laughs) And people get on horses to try and track down the chickens. And horses. uh, I mean, this is, we got to go. Saturday, I'm told at Fred's and Mamou, uh, they start playing Cajun music around noon. So uh, Mamou's a happening place. Uh, um, now, um, so you can go to uh, Mamou. Um, if you want to go to, uh, on a, a, not on a more serious note, but on another note, uh, oh, this festival's all over. There's the French Food Festival. Oh, what's that small, like Napoleonville? I think it's Napoleonville, and somebody's going to be mad at me if I get that wrong. But the French Food Festival. Now, um, um, you know, Cajuns have learned how to make everything delicious. Yeah. And yeah. so if you'll go to a restaurant, George's in Baton Rouge, uh, or the chimes, you can get fried alligator if you want. And fried alligator is actually pretty good. Um, so uh, so you really enjoy that. And then, um, oh, and I'm told that um, just French Food Festival is in La Rose. La Rose. La Rose. Uh, All right. La Rose. Well, so these are the kind of tips I'm talking about here. But, you know, having spent a lot of time in Kentucky, I can tell you that many Kentuckians take credit for the disposition of those in New Orleans because they would send the bourbon down the river. Uh, care to comment on any of that? So, you know, let's just point a couple things out. <laughs> you may know that Pappy Van Winkle, a very nice brand, yes, is owned by a family out of New Orleans. Okay, okay. I asked him about that, the Sazerac company. Yeah, absolutely. He said it was falling apart and bought this whole thing. It was crappy whiskey, but they so they just left it in the barrel. And five years later, they tasted it again. It was fantastic. Oh, so that was the secret? It was just the aging process? It was a total aging process. Sazerac actually has a museum on Canals uh, Boulevard in New Orleans. Uh, so you can go down there, and it's right near the French Quarter across from across the Canal Street from, from New Orleans. So so Sazerac. But, but that said, um, um, if you will, I would argue that one of Kentucky's best bourbons only exists because of the far-sightedness of somebody from Louisiana. <laughs> <laughs> a shot returned, a full-serve returned. I love it. I set it up and you hit it back. Hey, let me tell you a little bit of a Kentucky thing. You know, Henry Clay's daughter married a guy from New Orleans, and his grandchildren, like, only spoke French. And they would come back up to Kentucky and not be able to talk to Papa. Uh, and there's still a Henry Clay, at least for the moment, there's still a Henry Clay Street in New Orleans. I didn't know that. That's fascinating. That's great. All right. Well, listen, I want to hit one more serious topic before we get to three questions, and that's immigration and the border. Uh, I know you've taken a, a huge interest in this. It's still a crisis, despite the fact that nobody's talking about it. Uh, what's going on down there? Yeah, so it's not just the people, it's the drugs that are coming across. Yeah. This past year, we have crossed the bear on a very serious note. We've crossed the line of another 100,000 people dying from overdoses. Um, and a lot of that is fentanyl, and a lot of that fentanyl has come across the border with Mexico. And when you go down there, they'll point out that the traffickers will run a bunch of people right here. And as, as, as all the agents 
congregate to catch the people coming across illegally, they will sneak the illegal drugs across the river at a point further away. So this is part of their strategy to get the fentanyl across. So the Biden basically distracting border police, yes, right? Yeah. consuming their resources. Um, so the Biden administration's laissez-faire attitude, uh, relatively speaking, because obviously the uh, border incursions have increased dramatically under this president, has not just been about people coming, but it's also about contraband coming. And that contraband is helping to kill hundreds of thousands of Americans. Yes. So, um, if you will, a pattern of incompetence which we are paying the price for. Yeah, it's just absolutely terrible. It's tragic. I'm glad that you and, and your colleagues are staying on top of it because this administration provides absolutely no faith in this whatsoever. I think our borders are. Kamala Harris went 30 miles away from the border and called it a day. Well, she probably thought that was a border. <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> no, you should have. <laughs> All right, so I got three questions for you, and it's particularly interesting. The first one uh, from a man uh, from Louisiana. Your last meal on Earth, if you can plan oh it, God. what is it? My last meal on Earth would be boiled crawfish with the entirety of my family. Oh, yeah. Uh, because you would just be sitting there and talking and eating and drinking, and it's a party food which tastes fantastic, and I'd be with the people I love. Oh, that's terrific. And that's kind of the way you do it down there, right? Every every totally. dinner is a celebration. Well, certainly boiled crawfish is, and it's no way to be formal. Um, and so it's a celebration with your family, with your community, and you want your last meal to be about your family and community as much about your taste buds. I love it. I love it. All right. So second question, if you never got into public service at all in any respect, and you had this huge gaping hole of time to fill it with whatever you want, a total blue sky, what would it be? At this point in my life, I would either be a full-time caretaker for my grandson, or if he did not exist, I would probably go be a missionary doctor in a, um, in some Spanish speaking country to pursue my love of Spanish and to use my skills as a doc. So, so tell me what's the, the, the love of Spanish. I mean, you got your multilingual, you got all these dials spinning Senator. I, I wouldn't say multilingual. I'm trying to be bilingual. Okay. Uh, but, well, I figured but, you had some French. Uh, well, it took French long ago, but like you talk to an educated French person, they all speak English, right? <laughs> yeah, right uh, but right. when I did my residency in Los Angeles, like 30% of my patients spoke only Spanish. And I had a girlfriend at the time who was really good at Spanish. And so it really got my interest. And so and now, uh, like 25% of the children in the Jefferson Parish school system, the largest parish in my state, or one of the largest parishes by population, um, come from families in which only Spanish is spoken at home. Mm-hmm. So now it's not just my interest, which I love Spanish language, but it's also the ability to communicate with constituents. Yeah. Uh, and I think the Republican Party, by the way, has been making inroads with people of Spanish background. Huge numbers. These children, these children are citizens. Uh, I mean, they were born here. Yeah. I don't know about their parents, but they're born here. So, so as Newt Gingrich says, that is our electorate in 18 years. Yeah. Uh, so, so there's a, uh, aside from my love for it, there's also a practical aspect to it. Totally. And as we've seen out of Texas, and I think we're seeing in Nevada, we've, uh, we've seen it already in Florida, there's a huge, huge sea change with Hispanic voters migrating towards the Republican Party in droves. And because, you know, look, you can only be told for so long the only issue you care about is legal immigration when you've got inflation at eight and a half percent, crime in the streets, the neighborhoods are falling down, and you can't teach anything in the schools, right? 
Well, you know, one thing, you totally agree with all that. And as somebody once told me, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I cut an ad in Spanish this past time, ran on the Spanish language radio station. And somebody told a friend of mine, I have no, speaking in Spanish, I have no clue what he said, but I, but I know he's trying, so I'll vote for him. Oh, I like that. I like and that. So, it matters. Yeah, we got to we got to try. Yeah. Um, now, by the way, I'm doing this not just for that. That's kind of a lanyap, as we say back home. That's something extra for nothing. But it's also a beautiful language, which I just enjoy learning. Yeah, that's great. All right. So final question. This goes to what motivates Senator Bill Cassidy. It's a little esoteric. So you stick with me on this. It's are you motivated more by the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat? Now, let me explain it for a second. The thrill of it, nobody likes defeat, right? Uh, the thrill of victory people are sort of sunny optimists charging up the hill, uh, you know, constantly trying to achieve the next thing. The agony of defeat person is every success they've ever had in life lasts about five seconds. But any setback they've ever had, they remember it like it's in the front of their brain every single day. And they work harder to try to ensure that it never happens to them again and they can get to the next level and the next level after that. Where do you find yourself on the spectrum? I think you're describing Nick Saban with that last one. Yeah, no, I, 100% Nick Saban is is the <laughs> agony of defeat guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, I am all about we can win, we can achieve. In fact, sometimes I think I'm, I'm, I'm channeling Nelson Mandela's inaugural speech when he became president of government in South Africa. We don't fear our failure. We fear our success, that we may actually be the best. Now, we all have to overcome the fear that more will be required of us because we actually can do more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that charging up that hill, that we can do it. And once we do it, as St. Paul says, we go from glory to greater glory. Not that you've succeeded and therefore you rest, but that you've succeeded and that tells you that you should succeed once more. That's what motivates me. Yeah, that's beautiful. You're a definite thrill of victory guy, Senator Cassidy. I got to tell you. <laughs> Listen, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for what you're doing. Uh, stay in touch, will you? Thanks. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate it, man. You bet. Take care. Bye. Man, oh man, Louisiana's lucky to have a guy like him. Well, listen, I got to tell you, he he pointed out some things I didn't know about. We can go to a place where you start drinking around the noon hour. They set chickens loose and you can chase them on horses. I, if that's not ruthless, I don't know what is. Okay, so I think we need to book a trip. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it feels right. It feels right. Um, all right, so look, we all wanted to play a game. We really wanted to play a game. De- desperately, given that one of the contestants <laughs> yeah. has had, yeah. had some things going on. And I've had, I, I have had tweets bookmarked for Steve Schmidt for two weeks. <laughs> I know I'm going to win this game. <laughs> the problem is that Steve, in addition to being crazy, is also defamatory in nature and some of the things that he has said are so specifically defamatory that I have been advised not to discuss them because he's got himself a problem we'll see how much of a problem but he's got a big problem oh no (laughs) 
Usually I don't listen to anyone, but when our lawyer's like, okay, guys. We got, we got, we got serious lawyer advice on this. Yeah, yeah. Very serious. And, and to be clear, zero liability on our front. No, no, we're great. Yeah, he's going to be in a bad place if he continues this. But, but the things that he are, is saying are so intentionally and knowingly false about me in particular that um, we've been advised uh, to sit tight. It's a real shame. To sit tight. It's a real shame. We would have. I want to- nothing more than to play this game. <laughs> I want nothing more. And like, honestly, as of about 30 minutes ago, I was like, fuck it. Let's roll with the game. But then the dude has another blast today. Yeah. And it's, again, um, one of two ways, right? Either I'm not going to be able to talk about Steve Schmidt for a little while, or uh, we're going to have just an explosive episode next week. But I, I need to, I, we need to do our due diligence on this and figure out exactly uh, how we're going to handle this. Well, yeah, we'll just have to make the game twice as good next week. Yeah. Yeah, and probably expand it like multiple weeks. Yeah. I mean, because there's just, you can't leave all this stuff. Uh, I, I can't, I guess I can't talk about it. <laughs> you can't. I want to so badly. All right. Well, we did it, fellas. We did it. I got to say, it was an absolute banger of an episode. Thank you so much to our guests, David Sachs and Senator Cassidy. So, until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Tuesday. Stay ruthless.